As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Kristen Biddley's happy I'm back. The head of North America Investments for City Global Wealth Management joins us now. Kristen, just reading through your notes, here's the quote that just jumped off the page for me. Unfortunately, we do not believe that inflation will fall fast enough for the Fed to recognise the cumulative impact of its actions in time to moderate its policies. What's the bottom line then for this equity market rally we're looking at on the screens over the last week? The bottom market for the the bottom line for this rally that we're seeing is unfortunately I think we're going to see continued volatility and this type of price action is quite normal in bear markets. This is why we're big advocates against market timing, because when you see some of the worst performance in markets, some of the biggest drawdowns, they tend to be followed by then the best days. And so if we look at over the past 50 years, we did an analysis, if if you were just out of the market for the two best days of each calendar year, you erase you erase your per annum returns by over 9.6%. It's basically an 80% reduction in returns. And so in these types of markets, you need to expect that type of volatility. And this Mm -hmm. right now, I think last week, I think we saw some short covering, we saw some defensive buying, but I don't think we're turning a corner until the market knows that we have definitively avoided a recession. And we're not there yet. We will stop the show here, folks, because what you just heard from Ms. Bitterly is the single most important thing of the first half of 2022. Let's revisit it, uh, Kristen, and this goes back to Capital Guardian Trust, American Funds in Los Angeles, and their landmark research 50 years ago. How many days, if I'm in cash... Do I need to miss before I destroy my return because I didn't get the few ginormous days? Say it again. So two days, just two days out of the market. And basically, you've erased the majority of your per annum returns. And that's over, again, we've looked at a 50-year period. Now, sometimes people ask the question, well, what's the probability that I could actually pick those two best days and just be in for those two best days? And unfortunately, you're better off playing the lottery. So that is no longer an investment strategy. That is pure speculation. So, Christian, that's the argument against cash. The other argument on the other side is there are certain parts of history that are aberrations, including the Great Depression, where nothing works and where everything loses, including 6040. How do you discern that type of period amid all of the gloom that we're hearing out of strategists? 
Yeah, so I think we have to look at actually some of the historic anomalies that we've seen year to date. So one of the historic anomalies that we've seen is the fact that this is the first time in history that we've seen both equities and bonds decline by more than 10% over a six-month period. So to go throughout history and try to find other other examples of when have we seen this decline in tandem, we used a threshold of 4.5%. And we've seen that there's been five other situations in history where you've seen that in tandem decline of equities and bonds by more than four and a half percent. In the six months following, in five out of five of those scenarios, fixed income was higher with an average total return of around 10.9%. Equities were higher only in three out of those five times with an average return of five and a half percent. So right now, I think while many people are questioning whether the 60-40 portfolio is dead, over a five-year rolling period, with the exception of the Great Depression, we haven't seen a negative return of 60-40 portfolio. So, Kristen, just to pick up on what you said, not just for 60-40, but more specifically where you have a little bit more confidence, is it in the bond market relative to equities or equities relative to bonds? I think you need a balance there, John, but I think bonds have been so out of favor, which is why we're talking about bonds more. So just three years ago, we had you know over 40% of the world's government debt was negative yielding. That's now around 10%. 10%. So the seismic shift that we've seen in rates and the comfort in adding quality fixed income to our portfolios. So we're looking at the muni market where depending upon what state you're living in, you're getting taxable equivalent yields in the ballpark of 7 to 8%. Investment grade fixed income where you're actually seeing priced into some of those spreads around a 40% chance of a recession. So it's not ignoring that probability. So that's where we've been adding exposure over the past couple of weeks. Kristen, this was awesome. Thank you. Kristen Bidley there of City Global Wealth Management. Lisa Hornby with us with Schroeder's head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income. Lisa, do you hide in full faith and credit? Uh, I think you definitely want to have some of your your risk uh, allocated to pure U.S. treasuries right now. Um, You know, well, we may have a little bit of a tactical bounce just given how much things have underperformed in credit recently. Uh, I think the the path of least resistance from here is still tighter financial conditions. So I think you want to have a decent amount of liquidity in your portfolio. Elisa, with that in mind, what's the risk that we still haven't fully realized? Is it the earnings story? What is it? I think the market is, I mean, you guys were kind of talking about the correlations between bonds and equities, and I think it's really relevant here. The market is still gyrating between, is it a recession story or is it an inflation problem? Which one do we have? Um, and as you see, I do think that the, the, the narrative will turn towards, it's a growth problem. We're going to be heading into a U.S. recession. Uh, we're not quite there yet, which means um, you know, bonds and equities, that those correlations can be a bit unstable. And I think you need a, a greater risk premium um, afforded to riskier assets and credit would be would be a part of that. So, you know, for us, it's 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 lower. It's lower duration um, credit when we take it. You know, I think the three to five year part of the market, credit market investment grade looks looks attractive, reasonably attractive with the break evens there. Um, but it's it's higher quality generally. It's li- liquidity, um, and it's not taking a whole lot of risk right now because I don't think we're in a spread compression environment for for the foreseeable future. How much volatility do you think we have to tolerate through the rest of this summer? Lisa, it's been amazing to me to see how much a narrative changes on a single data point within a data point. When did we ever used to talk about UMIT reading of long-term US consumer inflation expectations? <laughs> when did that move the bond market by five, 10 basis points in either direction, set the tone for a Fed that might go 50 or 75 at any given meeting? When did it come to this? 
And, and that's and that's the problem, right? Until you can figure out, or until the market can coalesce around where the the, the risk-free rate belongs, how could we possibly decide on a path for riskier assets? You know, you you almost need to get some stability in that in that rate forecast before you can see any stability elsewhere. And I think, I don't know how you want me to measure that volatility question, John, but I think it's more. I think the answer is more volatility, continued volatility, until we get some certainty that these inflation readings are going to start to trend downward. So Lisa, if someone were listening to this entire program, they would have heard Kristen bitterly make the argument that you don't want to be in cash and that you need to be fully invested because if you miss just a couple days, you miss an entire uh, 8%, 10% return. And it really is the winning moment. What is your argument against that in your quest for liquidity? I think you, it depends on who you're managing money for, what asset class you're managing, what your targets are, right? At the end of the day, we manage fixed income portfolios, and these are meant to be, in many ways, the ballast, the sleep at night portfolios for people. Um, you know, So we perhaps have a different uh, risk budget and, and, and sort of target than, than, than Christian does. Um, but yeah, you, you, know, you can't have all liquidity, which is why I suggest um, a, a decent portion of your exposure be allocated to some of these really high quality investment grade companies at the short end of the curve where you can earn a four, four and a half percent yield, you know, over the next couple of years, I think that's going to be a positive real return trade. Um, it's going to take some, it's going to take some time to get there, but I think we will, we will be paid and rewarded for something like that. And it gives us the opportunity to sort of hide out and wait and, you know, wait for better opportunities to emerge. So Lisa, when you say liquidity, how much is just pure cash? Well, pure cash is hard if you're managing relative return portfolios, but I would say you know you want a, a decent portion, double-digit portion uh, of treasury exposure across the curve. So we we manage relative return, so we're benchmarked to the Barclays Act in most in most portfolios, in many portfolios, um, and so that means we you know we want a a high quality liquidity overweight, whether it be treasuries, agency mortgages, some combination thereof. Cash, cash itself for us is hard if you want. If you have an absolute return portfolio, then certainly cash is, is, a, is a better option. Lisa, thank you. As always, Lisa Hornby there of Schroeder's. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We start the program this morning with Laurie Calvacina, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. And Laurie, let's start with that bond market. What is the dominant factor behind lower yields in the last week or so? And what do you think the implications are for the durability of this equity market rally? So, look, it's a great question. I'll tell you, our rate strategy team has been looking for that peak in the 10-year yield, and they've thought that as growth concerns and recession concerns built, that it would weigh on that bond yield. And we've actually looked at that as something that could help stabilize the tech part of the market. 
which strangely ends up being a stabilizing force for the equity market simply because of the math of the market cap in terms of its contribution to things like market cap and net income. So I think it, you know, it feels a little bit contradictory in nature, but I do think that is one of the things that has really been giving some stability to market. And I'll tell you, John, as I've talked to investors the last couple of weeks, there's a real focus on the idea that if we get a recession, it will largely play out in the next couple quarters and we won't have any lasting wounds and scars and we can sort of get into 2023, still have a decent year, still have decent earnings. And so I think that kind of rip off the Band-Aid now, get through this economic pain, the Fed's helping that process along, that sort of longer term optimism on 2023 is something else that I've actually just seen in my conversations yeah. as lending some optimism to investors. Lori, you're on the road a lot. I want you to get out beyond 2023 and get away from the strategist game of what's going to happen by next Tuesday. And I want you to look long term. You're more qualified to do this than anybody out of collegiate America. You lived in the most prestigious dorm rooms in America at UVA. I want you to go back to Jefferson and say, how do you do this now for the long haul? How do you stay in the market and not uh, not afraid in cash right now? So look, Tom, I think that when we go back and we look at the history of recessions, what we have to remember is that they do typically beget buying opportunities for longer term investors. And, you know, we get a lot of caught, we get very caught up in my job, you know, with some of my competitors and investors, frankly, on kind of what's the absolute downside? What does the end of the year number look like? But if you actually go back and look over the course of recessions, stock act stocks actually go up a little bit. If you take the NBER dates, you tend to see these very big pivots, areas like small caps, these are historic historic buying opportunities for that smaller, riskier part of the market. So I think you need to keep those bigger, longer-term pictures in mind first off. The second thing I would tell you is I think the conversation about recession, yes or no, when does it happen? That's an important one. But we also, as investors, if we're really longer term, need to be thinking about what things look like on the other side. What's the longer-term growth expectation? I'm talking to a fair number of people who think we exited this hot economy, this above-trend economy that was boosted by stimulus. If that stimulus is lacking in this economy, in this economic recovery going forward, anticipate a slower growth backdrop, which does typically benefit the secular growth sectors like technology. Those would be the two things I would focus you on right now. So, Lori, that brings us to John's point where he started off asking, are these scenarios consistent with each, each other? This idea of a stagflationary spiral where you get slowing growth in a recession and re and you also get inflation that doesn't cool materially and a recession that brings us back to where we before where we were before and then some. So parse out what the difference is and whether there still is a chance of that stagflationary environment. So look, I think that there are two parts of the same timeline. I think this idea of recessionary fear sort of playing in the here and now, frankly, Lisa, I think that's something investors have already been positioned for. If you look at defensive sector valuations that are at peak versus cyclical and secular growth, small cap uh, positioning in the futures market is down below financial crisis lows. So, you know, it does feel like that is still playing out in the here and now, but the positioning in the market already reflects that. That longer term sort of stagflationary type of environment is something investors can still wrap their heads around. So perhaps you don't need to be as bearish on things like energy as you did in the past, even if there are some pressures in the short term. So we're market weight on energy for, for just that reason. Um, but you also do want to think about sort of that longer term backdrop and kind of how you want to be positioned for that slower growth environment, which frankly, I don't think is going to exit anytime soon. So I don't think investors are being inconsistent. I think they're trying to put on different trades for different durations at the same time. Laurie, awesome to catch up as always. And great to start the week with you. Laurie Cavacina there of RBC Capital Markets. 
Here's what we're going to do over a weekend of emotion for America and for our international audience. It's difficult to calibrate the importance of the decisions, plural, of the Supreme Court. We're going to go to the expert. Mohammed Yunus is editor-in-chief at Gallup. They've been doing it longer. They've been doing it more measured. They've been doing it deeper and measuring the pulse and cadence of America. Mohammed, I thought Kate Zarenki in the New York Times was spectacular this weekend on looking at the state legislature. The revolution of 2010, which was very much like Gingrich in 1994, in the fabric of America. And I want to go to a phrase that you know, which is trifecta America, which is when a state is entirely Democrat or a state is entirely Republican. Does Gallup presume that we will stay as polarized as we are now and frankly become ever more a trifecta America? There is, that's a great question, first of all, Tom, as always. Um, there's no doubt that America is politically more divided than it, since we started measuring it in the 1930s. There's been no sign during these past um, months of the Biden administration that that's improving in any way. However, we do ask Americans whether they prefer this kind of trifecta setup, at least in Congress. And what we find is that Americans, actually the majority of them, um, prefer a divided government. They prefer there to be balance between the two parties. But um, this decision, like you said, Tomic, really can't overstate the magnitude of upending 50 years of settled law in the United States, and the reaction has been massive. A completely unfair question, but I'm sure you will gauge it. What is the belief in America in the Union, almost a Lincolnian Union, back to 1850, 1860? Do we believe in Union, or do we nudge towards some form of separation? It's Again, we've never asked that specifically, but... Um, I would say that, that the union is still intact and will remain intact. And I say that because Americans are overall pretty positive on their own lives and on their local government. Americans are very disappointed in national government. And that's really where we've seen the most declines in confidence in institutions, in the Supreme Court, in Congress. Um, overall satisfaction of the United States hasn't been over 50% in over a decade now. So Americans are very down on their national government, but there aren't signs necessarily of, you know, dissolution of the union in public opinion. And Mohammed, there does seem to be a galvanizing of local elections. However, people are looking to the national elections, to midterms and beyond to understand the overall trajectory here. Do you have a sense of whether some of these social issues could overcome inflation and economic issues as the main uh, uh, voter preference or motivator going into the midterm elections? Well, if you would have asked me that on Friday before this decision came out, I would have told you that's very hard to believe. Um, now, it's an open question. It obviously depends on how bad inflation and the economy really gets for Main Street moving into this election. But right before this decision, we asked Americans how important abortion was to your vote. And we did see an uptick in those that, that said they would only vote for somebody who shared their views. It's also important to remember this decision is not popular in America. Six in 10 Americans did not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. Um, 55% of Americans described themselves as pro-choice, and that's been on the, on the increase. So 
over the past couple of decades, America has really moved, if you will, to the left on abortion. And now this decision by the court is, is really out of step with public opinion. Not that it's the wrong decision. That's not the basis upon which the court makes its decision. But we know this is not going to be a popular decision with the public. Mohammed, just a final question for me. Do you find that is coming up in more than one topic on several fronts? We often talk about this country being very divided. But on certain issues, it's really not. It's just Washington, D.C. that's very divided down party lines. Do you sense that's becoming a bigger issue across a range of issues? Uh, actually, no. But these are the kinds of issues that really can. Um, these social issues can really, really uh, become a focus and can divide communities. And we've seen that in the past. But overall, um, Americans are rather positive on local government. They are not seeing their state governments as um, nearly as negatively as they see uh, the national government. And that really now goes across the board. The, the Supreme Court, just before this decision, after the leak, hit a record low of 26% confidence in the general public. In the 90s, that was much more uh, close to sort of 60 or 70%. Mohammed, one foot to catch up to get your views and the data too off the back of your polling. Mohammed Yunus there of Gallup. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.